So good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Peter Shane, and uh, the particular hat that I'm wearing this morning, I guess I'm not wearing any literally, but uh, I, is, as chair is the board of editors for IS, a journal of law and policy for the Information Society. And it's my privilege to welcome everyone both in the auditorium and uh, via the web to today's conference, which is called Cybersecurity, Shared Risks, Shared Responsibilities. This is the fifth annual symposium that IS has staged on a major topic at the intersection of law, policy, and information and communication technology. A lot of my own uh, academic career, and especially over the last decade, has been spent trying to catalyze, bring together uh, significant interdisciplinary projects. My mantra is always, uh, social problems do not respect disciplinary boundaries. And it's hard to imagine a topic that proves the point uh, more profoundly than cybersecurity. Unfortunately, uh, when we attach this, the uh, prefix cyber to some problem, a lot of people just assume that the answer, if there need be one, is entirely one of engineering. And I suspect that technologists and perhaps their vendors are sometimes happy uh, to aid and abet that misunderstanding. But the path that we as a society take to protect the integrity of our systems of network communication and information storage and to preserve the use of those systems for lawful purposes is a path that potentially implicates our deepest social values. Every step we take, every contingency plan that we pursue poses risks and trade-offs that are the stuff of public policy. Getting the public policy and the community and the technical community to speak to each other and understand each other is not necessarily an easy task. And the problem is not just that lawyers don't understand enough engineering, although that is a problem. Uh, some years ago, I happened to be chatting with a fairly prominent computer scientist about various forms of cyber misconduct that we were both worried about. And he opined that a great many problems could be solved, or at least reduced, if we simply required that before people uh, were allowed to get on the internet, they simply have some form of government license. Now, I'm something of a wise guy myself, so I assumed he was joking. And when I looked at him, his facial expression uh, confirmed that he was not. And so I muttered something that included the words First Amendment, and he immediately said, oh, yes, I didn't think of that. Um, and, and I then said, well, perhaps we should talk more often. So um, today, I hope, is that kind of talk where um, lawyers and engineers and scientists perhaps each get to remind one another of things that they, they should all have on their collective minds, uh, but perhaps are not central to the attention of their particular discipline. Today, we've assembled what I think is truly an exceptional uh, multidisciplinary group of experts to shed light on the nature of the cybersecurity policy challenge. Uh, we can look forward to three great individual talks and three exciting panels, all of which will focus on different aspects of the problem. Uh, I'll introduce our first speaker in a moment, but I do want to mention uh, our other two keynoters who are coming later in the day. Over lunch, we'll be hearing from Robert Butler, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cyber Policy in the U.S. Department of Defense. And at 4.10 this afternoon, uh, our special guest will be Christian Preek, who is Counselor for Defense Policy in the Embassy of Estonia. Uh, Estonia, as uh, at least some of you may recall, was the target of a series of aggressive 
cyber attacks that lasted for a month in 2007, and as a consequence of its national commitment to improve cybersecurity, uh, NATO established its Center for Cyber Excellence in Tallinn, uh, Estonia's capital, in 2008. So given our network planet, we think it's appropriate to end the day uh, with an international perspective. I also want to thank uh, some of the people who are responsible for putting together what I really think is going to be uh, an extraordinary program. Of course, we're especially grateful to the speakers, all of whom are hugely busy people and whose offers to appear today and to provide papers for our volume uh, really represent acts of true uh, intellectual generosity. A great many members of the IS student staff helped out with logistics, uh, but their remarkable leader in uh, planning and executing this effort is the IS executive editor, uh, Tegan Ahmed Kaner, um, whose work really has been exceptional. I've already threatened to postpone her graduation, so she would, she'd be on hand to uh, handle our other events going forward, uh, but apparently that's not within my prerogative. Um, her key teammates, who likewise contributed enormous energy, insight, and initiative, were our editor-in-chief, uh, Jasmine Jackson, and our events editor, Jacqueline Lovergetta. We made extensive use of the law school's uh, exceptionally good communications and design team, especially Rob Phillips, who unfortunately has gone off uh, for a job in the so-called private sector. Uh, Rob, I just want to say, come back. Uh, J.D. Barlow and Andrea Reinecker. Kyle Schutt is giving us important technical support, and Ohio State's Media Services uh, is handling the, web, uh, the webcast setup, and we're very grateful to everyone. Of course, staging a conference like this also requires funding, and I am deeply grateful to the Office of the Dean of the Law School for its support and for the support of the Center for Interdisciplinary Law and Policy Studies and the Intellectual Property Law Society here at Moritz. We received a grant from Microsoft and on our own campus from the Mershon Center for International Security Studies. Uh, Rick Herman, uh, Mershon's director, will be moderating one of our panels. Uh, Rick is a real champion of interdisciplinary dialogue at Ohio State, and I'm grateful for his personal as well as uh, Mershon's institutional support. Finally, as is often the case, uh, I happily claim some credit for having the idea for this conference, but I knew at the outset I would need a co-organizer with some actual knowledge of the topic, somebody who could help sort out the relevant intellectual landscape, figure out uh, who would be great speakers, and even assist in editing our published symposium issue to come out next fall. And that person is also our first speaker, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hunker. Jeffrey and I overlapped as colleagues at Carnegie Mellon University, and pretty much everything I uh, think I know about cybersecurity, I know either through his work or at his instigation. In the 1990s, during the Clinton administration, Jeffrey served as Senior Director for Critical Infrastructure at the National Security Council, where he led the development and implementation of the first national strategy for cybersecurity. He had served earlier as the first director of the Federal Interagency Critical Infrastructure Assurance Office and was Senior Policy Advisor and Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of Commerce. In addition to his government experience, Jeffrey has worked as a management consultant and a Wall Street investment banker, and I can also report, and this is not in the program, uh, that he has some experience promoting rock concerts. Um, he holds an AB uh, and a, in, excuse me, holds an AB in engineering and applied physics and a PhD in business administration with an emphasis on managerial economics from Harvard University. Following eight years at Carnegie Mellon as professor of technology and public policy, he's now in private practice as an author, researcher, and advisor on cybersecurity, 
network governance, and critical infrastructure issues. His recent book, which is uh, available for purchase here and uh, for autographing after the talk, we have a, a, a table set up, is called Creeping Failure, How We Broke the Internet and What We Can Do to Fix It, which was published last year by McClelland and Stewart. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Jeffrey Hunker. Oh dear, how do I follow up to an introduction like that? I want to thank, uh, I want to thank my parents for paying Peter for such a nice, for such a nice introduction. Um, every talk begins with wrestling with technology, so allow me to wrestle with the technology here of the, of the, um, of the slides for one second. Perhaps if somebody could help me with, ah, I see, got it. And then we just go to view. Got it. Good. It strikes me that if somebody wants to make a fortune, they can make a new app that will instantaneously bring up the, the slides, and so every speaker doesn't have to fiddle with the computer uh, before they do that. Well, I'm Jeffrey Hunker, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, and it strikes me that one of the themes of what I'd like to talk about is how foundations that are um, laid, perhaps, uh, um, accidentally or without thought to their consequences, in fact, do have uh, uh, important implications later on. And I think I can think of three examples, and in fact the first is what Peter had alluded to in his introduction to me, which is I met Peter, oh, about uh, eight or ten years ago, and the circumstances were when I was at Carnegie Mellon, and, he, and there was this law professor also at Carnegie Mellon, and he approached me with this interest in uh, issues about information and, and society and participative democracy, and I was thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the bits and the bytes and the memory stacks and the, everything else like that that preoccupy most people at Carnegie Mellon, which tends to be a more technically oriented school, except if you're in the drama department when it isn't. Um, but it's out of that uh, first set of discussions that, in fact, I'm here today and that we're having what I think is an extraordinarily important uh, not just conference and symposium, but um, a punctuation in, in, a, in a process that really started when, uh, probably uh, materially started when we had our website up, and I'd encourage everybody to visit it and participate in the blog. It's www.cybersecuritycommunity.org. Uh, there's a blog there. We'd encourage you to uh, get, involve yourself in it. It's intended to be an ongoing site for discussions about the issues that uh, this symposium is intended to highlight. So we started a process, and that process started 10 years ago um, with uh, really a, a very different sort of meeting between Peter and myself. So that's one example. Um, I think a second example is uh, simply the fact that we're all here 
in part because there were some choices that were made about the architecture of the Internet uh, 40 years ago. And while I uh, sometimes read articles that say that, uh, that treat the Internet almost as though it were an act of God that were created along with the mountain ranges, in fact, there were design choices and engineering choices that were made with the Internet that in many ways have implications for the issues and challenges that we're facing today, uh, the lack of adequate security, the lack of appropriate attribution in, the net, in network messaging, things like that. And I guess the third way I'd say in which uh, issues or uh, events of a long time ago have uh, implications is, is my own experience. Because I've been dealing with uh, cybersecurity, critical infrastructure protection now for, believe it or not, 13 years, which I guess if you think about Internet uh, um, time as opposed to regular chronological time, puts me probably back in the, you know, in the Triassic era in terms of when I first started uh, working on uh, cybersecurity cybersecurity issues. And so I've watched the evolution of uh, much of the framework that was laid out back in the period between 1998 and 2001. And again, I think that some of, the, uh, some of that framework has had important implications, both positive and negative, in terms of um, what we're doing. So that's a little bit of background. I'd like to say also, before I really begin, I'd like to just say thank you I'd like to say thank you to Peter. I'd like to say thank you to the students who helped organize this. I'd like to say thank you to, to all of you, and in particular the speakers here who have, uh, are not only just coming here to talk, as is the case in many conferences, but are actually, have actually written articles, drafts of articles and uh, s substantive articles, and will be um, um, part of, uh, uh, the su subsequent special issue of IS that will be coming out based on this symposium. So I'm going to talk today about global leadership in cybersecurity, and I'm going to talk about this in a somewhat oblique, oblique fashion. Um, and I'm going to talk about it because, in a, in a sense, the U.S. model for cybersecurity that was really created back in the period uh, um, in two, uh, by 2001, 2003, I think we can say that the basic elements of that had been, had been formalized, has in a sense been adopted more or less by much of the rest of um, the industrialized world. And I think that there's a question in terms of whether that model, in fact, is working and a particular aspect of that model that's, that's absolutely central to it is public-private partnerships, which is really the focus of today's conference. Now, I have a book. So, and this is my first trade book. So as opposed to all the academic books I've written, I've learned that when you write a trade book, which is designed for uh, a, a general audience, your publisher expects you uh, to promote it. So uh, this, is my, this is my one blurb about my book. It's, uh, and I'll just mention this because a lot of what I'm talking about today, in fact, uh, you'll find in my discussions that are presented in, in the book. And the basic theme is the following, which is I think that in a large part 
the model that we followed for uh, U.S. and by extension for the G7 at least uh, cybersecurity policy in fact isn't working right now and that we have to make some very substantive changes in that policy which does not mean heavy-handed regulation but does mean a different significantly different approaches uh, than the ones that we've been taking so far. We're not, it's not working, it hasn't resulted in a disaster, hence my, the, hence the title creeping failure. Creeping as in the sense of every year our security problems become worse, every year our challenges become greater, there is not the crisis to precipitate great change, and hence we get used, we get used to it. And uh, the context for that, I'll just say, is uh, simply my own experience. I remember back in 1998 when I was uh, first uh, beginning to deal with these critical infrastructure protection issues, um, and we were looking for examples of significant cyber attacks and the like. Um, I have to say that we, and I say we, I mean people within, this is both myself, uh, at the Commerce Department and subsequently at the National Security Council, the people at the NSA, CIA, FBI, etc. We had to scrape the bottom of the barrel to find really good examples of hackers breaking into computer systems and in some way threatening either in a material criminal fashion or um, from a national security perspective um, the uh, security and economic welfare of the United States. We had to scrape the bottom of the barrel then. Uh, and a lot of them were, frankly, your, your prototypical 18 or 17-year-old teenage hacker. Um, well, fast forward to today, and it's, you don't have to scrape the bottom of the barrel. Uh, we have highly organized, highly profitable um, cyber underworld, a criminal cyber underworld. We have the rise of what I believe is going to be political hacktivism. We've seen with Stutznet, which I'll talk about in a moment. I think a first really overt example of physically destructive, um, certainly state-sponsored um, cyber attack. It's a very different world. And hence, when I say creeping failure, the creeping is the difference between the situation in 1998 and 2000 and the situation today. We've gotten, there hasn't been a crisis. Things have gotten much worse from a security perspective. We have just adjusted to that. So I want to make three basic points to leave you with today, and I'll go through these fairly quickly. The first point is that, and I've started to begin on that, really, is that our current cybersecurity policies don't work. Or if they work, they work kind of. Um, our partnerships, our public-private partnerships are absolutely key. There's no way that you can get around the fact that most of the critical infrastructures are privately owned or controlled, especially in this country. I'll say as, a, as sort of a side point, it's oftentimes said that something like 85% or 90% of the critical infrastructures are privately owned. I have no idea where that 85 or 90% came from. And I think it's an example of one of those numbers that gets repeated until it becomes fact. But I'm going to state categorically right now that I think it is total fiction. Anyway, most infrastructures are privately owned, at least in this country. And so I think it's, in general, the challenge of working between the state and the private sector is important for all of the, of the G7 and the advanced nations. 
I would suggest that this model, however, that we have for public-private partnerships fails. Um, and it fails for some structural reasons. And because it was set up really um, based off of a telecommunications partnership model that actually is not applicable for most of the critical infrastructures um, that are out there. And I think that because it's failing for structural reasons that further exhortations on the part of the White House or whoever are not going to produce further success. Um, I don't think, I'm not going to end there. I do think that there are some opportunities for leverage that, um, and that uh, we have to look at different mechanisms, different means of promoting public-private partnership. And I'd like to lay out three of them. Uh, one is based off of essentially our experience with Y2K, which I was very, very directly involved. It ruined one of my New Year's Eves. Um, I'd like to talk, um, I'd like to plant a big idea, which is that we, have, we should be thinking, as we think about public-private partnerships, about uh, the need for, in fact, creating not a replacement for the Internet, but a substantial-sized, at-scale, alternative network that would provide the sort of security and reliability that, in fact, many of our applications now running on the Internet require and don't get from just because of the technical architecture of the Internet. And I'd like to leave you with a small idea, which is that I think it is obvious that we ought to be taking some steps to improve the quality of the data that decision makers and risk managers have and that we can do some very simple things to do that. So let me start with a, mo a thought model. And this shapes my thinking about what's required, not just for Internet security overall, but for, uh, it also applies specifically for partnerships. I think the Internet, in fact, ought to be thought of as a city. You know, back 10 years ago, there was talk about the Internet as the information superhighway. I don't hear very many people talking about that now. But I think the Internet is a city. I think it's a city uh, in the sense that it, it has addresses, it has businesses, it has residences, it has thoroughfares, it has commercial structure. It literally imports and exports things from within its, its domains. Um, and that not in a physical fashion, but in a cyber fashion, if you think of the analogs between what a city represents and what the Internet is, I think that it holds very well. It describes, in fact, the structure of the Internet. And I'd like to suggest that this view of Vancouver, in a sense, represents our notion of what the Internet is or ought to be. You know, the Internet is a thriving place where participative democracy can take place, where uh, people can communicate with each other in ways that they haven't before, that new forms of commerce can be taking place, that it's an exciting place, that it represents, in, that it represents the future. I actually think this is what the Internet is. Um, this is a picture of London circa 1830. This is the London of, that Charles Dickens wrote about. So this is probably the only computer science conference that you're going to hear Charles Dickens referenced in. But Charles Dickens described a London 
and listen to the description of what London was. London and the 1830s and 1840s was a metropolis of a size and scope that no one had ever seen or imagined ever before. It was a completely new phenomenon. It, it was of a size that was unimaginable 30 or 40 years ago. It represented, it was driven by absolutely new technologies in steam and electricity and the like. It, it was the center for industries and commerce that had not existed just a few years before. People were coming from all around the world and meeting and forming new forms of association and organization that had never occurred before. It was in many ways what the internet, it was the internet of 170 years ago. New technologies, unheard of coming together of people, new opportunities, very exciting. It was also what the internet is today. It was, it had no governance structure. There was no organized police force for London. In fact, the city of Lo London as a metropolis didn't exist. It was still a collection of villages and what is referred to today as the city was in fact the city. That was the only part of London that was officially London. The rest were separate villages. There was no police force. There was no public health authorities. There was no sewer system. The place was rife with garbage and it was filled with crime. You went outside at your own risk and you defended yourself. Your safety depended upon putting bars upon your windows. And I think in a lot of ways this represents what the internet is today. It's filled with tremendous amounts of opportunity and excitement and it's also a potentially a very dark place that lacks the governance structure, that lacks the sort of institutional infrastructure that we take for granted for the modern city um, that we would have thought of when we look at a place like Vancouver. Now, what's the difference between these two? Um, what happened with London was that, uh, and this was not without a great deal of political controversy, and again, I think that that represents a lot of what's happening here um, today, uh, that London made a number of choices in terms of its technical architecture and in terms of uh, its, uh, its, the, uh, institutional infrastructure and incentives. The first thing was probably they built a sewer system, uh, a massive sewer system, and I know that sounds really boring, but in fact it was one of the great engineering triumphs of the uh, 1840, of the uh, Vic Vic Victorian age. And because they built the sewer system, they also had to drive massive political for reform so that there was for the first time actually a unified London authority that started off having authority over the sewer system and eventually ended up becoming the, the umbrella organization that now manages greater, greater London. You had the establishment of, for the first time, a police force, uh, which subsequently became Scotland Yard. You had the establishment also in the 1840s and 1850s of public health authorities, a movement that not only it started really in London and the like, but extended around the world. Massachusetts created its first public health authority sometime in the 1840s. There were a number of institutional changes. There were a number of infrastructure changes that London took at that time that laid the foundation for it 
to become the model for the sort of city that we have today as opposed to the London of 1830s. And I would suggest that that in part is part of the challenge that, that faces us today. That we lack, when we think about it, the sorts of, of structures. And my favorite example in this, and, I'll, and then I'll move on specifically to public-private partnerships, but this bears very directly. My favorite example of how this system uh, that we have today works in so many aspects of our life, but does not work in the internet, is the example of how we deal with the risk of fire. So London was pretty well destroyed back in, I believe it was eight, 1687, uh, the Great Fire of London. I may be off by a year or two. But that gave us subsequently Christopher Wren's opportunity to build St. Paul and also uh, to redesign much of the city uh, of London in a way that art historical students come and tourists snap pictures of, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a great disaster. And out of that, one of the things that emerged was the beginnings of our system of fire insurance. And for those of you who remember our, your American history, you'll recall that Benjamin Franklin extended this model in Philadelphia with private fire insurance uh, organizations, and the deal was that you belonged to an insurance company, and if your house was insured, then the private insurance company would have fire engines and respond to a fire. And of course, if you didn't, you were out of luck. Well, this was the beginnings of the model, but think about the model that we have today. So we have fire insurance. We also have fire codes. We also have both fire uh, uh, research being done at the uh, federal level and also by any number of private authorities. I mean, Underwriters Laboratory, for example, does, uh, does this sort of work. Why is it Underwriters Laboratory? Because it works with the insurance in industry. And this entire system, and we also have a number of ways in which this, this system is, is buttressed. So you can't get a mortgage or you can't get a business loan unless your property is properly, is properly insured. You can't get the insurance unless the building ha is up to code. The code is established by some process that eventually links it back to you know, substantive technical standards. They differ a lot building codes in the United States, but they, they, they have some technical basis for it. And the science of understanding how fires propagate and how we prevent them continues to advance over time. You know, this is a system that works actually really well. And it didn't sort of evolve overnight. I mean, the triangle um, shirt uh, waste factory fire of, that just recently got some attention was 100 years ago. And that actually drove in New York and in New York City substantive changes in terms of the fire code and the responsibilities that uh, business owners had and property owners had for, for fire insurance. It also, around that time in New York State, there were requirements, for example, that insurers had to share the data that they collected about fires amongst each other which, by the way, is not a requirement when you get uh, insurance, if you can get it, right now for dealing with cybersecurity. And the consequence in fire is that we have very reliable, very large-scale data sets about the risk of fire. Because that practice that New York State established originally 
spread elsewhere. So these are examples, and so we have a system today that works, that reinforces itself. We have codes of conduct and law, we have insurance, we have mandates for insurance, we have expectations of behavior. You do not start a fire at your desk. You know, if you smoke, you smoke outside. Uh, we have fire extinguishers, everything else like that, that all works and reinforces itself. We don't have the same system for the Internet right now. We don't have a system of managing the risk, of ensuring the risk, of collecting data about the risk, of mandating certain types of behavior, not driver's licenses, not First Amendments, but perhaps there are some requirements that network operators could take that could reduce system-wide risk. We have none of that right now for the Internet, and that's basically what I think is the difference between the Internet and other ways in which we manage risk. It's the difference between Vancouver as a city representing the Internet and London of the 1830s as a city representing the Internet. So let me talk about public-private partnerships. I said that the U.S. basically model of um, cybersecurity has been the model that's, that's uh, been adopted by most of the rest of the G7. It basically rests on three tenets. I mean, I've written these reports. I read these policy reports. I mean, they're long. But it, when you boil it down, it basically comes out to three notions. One is that the federal government provides itself as a model for cybersecurity. The second is that there's R&D investments and there's human capital investments, both so that we have a trained workforce and skilled people and that we're investing continuously in new technologies that will be addressing problems. And the third is the notion of public-private partnerships with the recognition that most of these critical infrastructures that we're actually concerned about protecting are to some greater or lesser extent outside of federal control and ownership, and therefore we have to figure out ways of working with the private sector. Let me suggest that there's some reasons, and I think today that we're going to uh, get into these, uh, and I think quite extensively, I think there's some reasons why we're going to see the model that we've had so far, at least in terms of its details, face a lot of pressure in the future. Because I basically, I'm going to be very cynical here. I'm in this position where I can kind of say what I think and not have to worry about my boss disagreeing with me. Um, I think over the last 10 years, we've seen a tremendous rise in cybercrime. And I think to a great extent what's happened is that the costs of that cybercrime have been more or less brushed under the rug in one fashion or another. Uh, I think that that, not that they're not substantial, they're in fact extraordinarily um, significant significant costs. And there's been a lot of investment in cybersecurity. It's, this is not like this issue has been ignored. But in fact, the issue has, we've allowed our existing system of cybersecurity policy to essentially, uh, in a circumstance where the problem has continued to get worse, but it hasn't reached a crisis stage. It hasn't gotten to the point of significant public attention. I think two events probably may change that. This is my thought. I think one is um, Stutznet. You may recall that this was the, um, the name for the computer worm that uh, disabled the Iranian uh, nuclear centrifuges this past fall. Um, 
almost certainly it was state-sponsored, almost certainly, I believe, with some involvement of the United States in terms of it. It essentially did with a computer virus what an Israeli jet fighter attack did back in the 1980s, which is to disable the, nu the Iranian nuclear, nuclear program. I mean, it was a tremendous, whoever did it, it was a tremendous success in the sense of it accomplished a goal without any loss, without any loss of life or any explicit military, military action. Well, that's great. I think Stutznik is the first of probably what we're going to see of multiple examples of state-sponsored destructive or disruptive cyber attack. And this prospect of cyber power, as I prefer to call it, or cyber war, as is more commonly used, I think it's going to be one of the game changers in terms of how we have to deal with cybersecurity going forward. Um, the, um, the other one is WikiLeaks. So everybody knows about WikiLeaks. Um, along with WikiLeaks, uh, you may recall that there was some uh, distributed denial of service attacks against the WikiLeaks site around the time that the uh, U.S. cables were released. There were also counterattacks, cyber attacks against organizations like MasterCard that withdrew their uh, support uh, for processing contributions to WikiLeaks uh, roughly around that same time. In other words, we saw this sort of what I would characterize as this sort of Wild West range war where depending on which side of the WikiLeaks thing was, you were either shutting down the WikiLeaks site or you were shutting down the sites of people who were taking actions contrary to WikiLeaks. And I think that that's represents political hacktivism or political activism. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. In other words, I think we're going to see a world where cyber security stops being something that we can kind of throw under the rug and stops being just a dollar cost and starts becoming, in fact, something that is, is in a real sense, actively disruptive of our life. Not because it's some hacker just out for his kicks, but because it's either state-sponsored and has a, has a state reason for a disruption, or because it's, it represents some political group attempting to make a statement. And I don't think either of those motivations are going to go away in the future. Okay, public-private partnerships. You know, it's interesting that public-private, when you go through the literature, that there's actually not a definition, I don't think, of public-private partnership anywhere. I think of them as formal arrangements, and I think of them as having to do a number, ideally a number of good things. Uh, information sharing, threat assessments against their particular sector or industry, the risk analysis, and then the process of saying, okay, this is the risk, this is how we will ameliorate the risk, these are the investments that we're going to make in the risk to, to manage the risk, and then, how do we main, and then how do we maintain an operational capability to ensure that this risk um, management process um, in fact works and how do we respond to immediate events. In general, I would say that in terms of if we think about public-private partnerships, I'll just make a comment here real, really briefly. I think in terms of information sharing, we have something called the U.S. CERT, um, which is the one of the sort of the centerpiece of the network of computer emergency response 
teams or um, offices that coordinate information sharing about vulnerabilities and threats. My sense is they actually do a pretty good job. It's sort of industry or countrywide. There's a network of these across various countries, and I know that um, when Christian Preek speaks later today about the experiences in Estonia, I know that the CERT personnel provided some important information for them and some important support. So I think information sharing, in, in some sense, my sense is actually at a, at a threat vulnerability level. My sense is it probably works pretty well. And I'll make one important comment here. When I talk in terms of public-private partnerships working well or not working well, you know, one of the issues is we really don't know. I mean, there's no real metrics out there. There's no real standard for saying this one works better. So I'm going to give you my perception based off of close reading of the public record of everything here. And everyone is more than free to, uh, free to disagree uh, in terms of this. I don't know if you can see this particularly very well, but this is intended to, um, oops, what did I just do? Here. Um, what, I'm, what I'm doing here, this is, uh, is in red, unfortunately. It's not showing up very well. But I want to talk to you for a moment in terms of um, why some public partnerships work better than others. So I said, in general, I think that the information sharing system works pretty well. I think that, though, other networks, other partnerships don't work particularly uh, well. Some, some do, and I think there's some structural reasons. So let's start just with thinking about the control plane for our communications, which is telecommunications and Internet, which is what I was trying to represent here in this red. And I'd make a basic point that when we think in terms of communications, we think in terms of have to think in terms of the internet and we have to think in terms of telecommunications. And they're, they're converging, but they're two fundamentally different technologies. And they, it matters when we think about public-private partnerships. Because telecommunications is what's called a circuit switch network. It requires some sort of centralized control of the network. Telecommunications is also regulated heavily by the Federal Communications Commission. So you have a system in place of centralized network control with close operational involvement of the federal government in the control of that network. You also have something called the National Communications Center, which is, is intended to further, from a national security perspective, the coordination between the federal government and the telecommunications network. The Internet, on the other hand, works completely, it's also a communications plane and it works completely differently. It's a packet switch network, which means that it doesn't require any centralized control centers to operate. In fact, by definition, it doesn't require any centralized control. There, it is not regulated heavily, at least, by the Federal Communications Center uh, Commission. And there are not any established mechanisms for uh, the federal government and the quote-unquote the internet to have um, a close awareness to my knowledge of the status of the internet in the same way that you do for telecommunications. So you start off by saying let's look at public-private partnerships, let's look at the control plane of the economy, and we see two very different 
models of how the public-private partnership works just at the, at the communications plane. One where we have, you know, ostensibly at least the basis for close coordination between the government and the sector. And the other, frankly, the Internet, the one that is becoming the predominant uh, communications platform, where in fact, because of the dispersal of the parties, because of the nature of the technology itself, we don't. So on top of the, this control plane, oops, and on top of this control plane here of the Internet and telecom, if you think about public-private partnerships, you can think about different sectors, okay? And I've just put them right here in terms of the yellow and blue. And let's call them banking and let's call them the electric power grid. I like banking and I like the electric power grid as models of public-private partnership because think about them for a moment. With the electric grid, you have already a structure Guess what? It's exactly like telecommunications. You require some centralized or quasi-centralized physical control of the electric grid. You have to end. You also have there a system, a structure by law where you have the Federal Energy Regulatory Commi uh, Commission, uh, FERC, that oversees the uh, operations of the electric grid, which in turn is coordinated by an already well-established industry organization called NERC, North American Electric Reliability Council, although I think they just changed their name. Um, so you have, again, the basis from starting from a, really from a physical structure of intense coordination within the sector, and you have the basis then by law and by history for coordination with, with the federal government. Again, I think it's a good model for the public-private partnership. You know, in a virtual way, I think you see the same thing with banking and finance. Again, you have a tightly linked network of institutions. In this case, it's not, they're not linked physically the way the electric power grid is, but they're linked through a set of close relationships of money, credit, obligations, whatever, 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 and also where you have intense oversight uh, and involvement in day-to-day -day operations by a set of U.S. regulatory authorities and oversight authorities, the Fed, the Treasury, control of the currency, whatever. Again, a network that centrally, in some sense, has a sense of itself as being tightly networked that in turn has a connection uh, to the federal government and the federal government has the experience and the legal authority to involve itself in the operations day to day. I think these are all models. You know, if you look at telecommunications, if you look at the electric grid, if you look at banking and finance, I think these are models that, that at least have the basis for a public-private partnership to work. I think there's a lot of structural issues, and I know that, for example, Susan Brenner is going to talk a little later and, uh, or has written papers um, uh, although her paper today won't address this directly, but I will we'll talk in term, has talked in terms of issues about how the federal government, for example, involves itself during times of crisis with various of these infrastructures. And there's, you know, questions about the legal authorities uh, that are there. Um, but nonetheless, I think we do have a basis for some uh, strong public-private partnership. Now, 
Let me contrast that with this up here, which I'm going to call chemicals or trucking. So with banking and finance, structurally, if you think about it, they're networks. The electric and power grid, it's a physical network. If you think about the chemical industry, you know, I mean, there's feedstock relationships, there's business relationships, but I don't think anyone can call the chemical industry a tightly, tightly linked or tightly coupled network. There are, there are relationships, but what happens in one uh, naphtha production plant does not necessarily have a lot of control, have a lot of impact, at least immediately. And when we say immediately, I mean, you know, within a matter of days or even weeks with, let's say, an oil refinery on the other side of the, of the coast. And I think that's true for a lot of these uh, infrastructures that we have out there. Trucking would be another example. Water would be a third example where, in fact, we have neither a sense of uh, internally of these infrastructures being networks, nor do we have necessarily any basis for the involvement of the federal government in their operations. I mean, yes, chemicals are regulated for safety. Chemicals are regulated for, for um, environmental emissions and things like that. But there's no day-to-day no -day involvement of the federal government, nor is there the expertise in the federal government for that day-to-day -day involvement in the same way that you have uh, with either banking and finance or with the electric power grid. And so one of the th I would just like to leave you with the thought that there are some public-private partnerships that probably work or that they kind of work. And I think part of the discussion that's going to take place today involves, you know, when do these public, how can we fine-tune this model? But, and there is a number of issues that remain when we think about telecommunications, when we think about the electric power grid, when we think about banking and finance. Um, and again, uh, you know, we can definitely improve information sharing. I think we can definitely improve the process of doing threat assessments and risk analysis. You know, how do we establish, in fact, what is the appropriate level of risk that ought to be out there and the like. But I think that there are some kinds of public-private partnerships that work. Um, I would also like to suggest that um, these infrastructures have some common characteristics. You know, as I've said, they're highly networked. They have quasi-centralized control. They have significant uh, federal overall operational overs oversight. And that there are a lot of our public-private partnerships that structurally just don't fit that model. And I'd like to suggest that these public-private partnerships just don't work very well. And there are structural reasons for that. You know, they're loosely networked. They have limited coordination across their sectors. They don't have any federal, uh, historical federal involvement in their operational oversight. And here's a couple of examples of them. So I think that there's some reasons why, in a sense, we can fine-tune the model for public-private partnership in working with electric power and working with banking and finance, with telecommunications. But very significantly, I think there's a number of sectors, like chemicals, where we can uh, exhort the chemical industry from now till the end of time, and there's structural reasons why that partnership isn't necessarily going to be very effective. I think even more important is the fact that this sort of characteristic, uh, many of the characteristics that apply to chemicals, 
also apply to the Internet. Now, the Internet is closely networked, but it's networked technically. It's not networked organizationally or institutionally. Um, so there's actually little coordination across the sector. You know, what one ISP does is not necessarily very closely coordinated with another. And you think about the quote-unquote governance on the Internet. Well, we have ICON that deals with a naming and addressing. We have the IETF, which deals with technical standards. But there's nobody who deals actually with operational issues across the Internet itself. And there's very good reasons for that. I mean, it's global. The, uh, the, the, between the backbones and the ISPs and the like, it's highly distributed in terms of ownership. But nonetheless, it fits this characteristic of a partnership that doesn't have the basis for it to work very well. So let me, let me leave you with one major observation. This is the second of my major observations. The first being that what we're doing right now doesn't work. I think the second being that there's, there's limited, read, no opportunity to create what I'll call the telecom model in a public-private partnership in a lot of other areas. So what can we do? I'm not going to leave you with the, just the negative news. I have a couple of thoughts. Um, maybe two of these are controversial, so let me start with the first. Um, I was involved with Y2K, which was the big snooze, if everybody remembers. Nothing actually seemed to have happened uh, with Y2K, but we, there was legitimate cause for concern. So <coughs> both Canada and the United States took the approach in uh, dealing with Y2K, basically of saying, we're not going to, we, the, 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 the federal governments uh, in both of our countries, we're not going to regulate or require companies to do anything for, uh, to prepare for Y2K. But in the case of the United States, the Securities and Exchange Commission did something I think very wise. They said, we're just going to, re if you ha are a public company and have to report to your investors, we are going to require you to report what, if anything, you are doing to prepare for Y2K. You could be doing nothing, and all you have to do is report that. In the case of Canada, they went a little further and they said, not only that, but we're going to state that if, in fact, uh, you violate any Canadian laws or regulations as a result of a Y2K failure, you are not going to be exempted from the subsequent punishment. And in both cases, uh, I think that that provided a, uh, it certainly, now, whether that was cause and effect, who knows, but it certainly stimulated the, the private sector to pay attention to this issue. And I think it stimulated it in a, in a very appropriate way because this was not an instance where the federal government was setting a particular standard of performance or whatever. It was simply saying that you had to report to your investors what, if anything, you were doing. It's your responsibility as the private sector to address that risk however you think is appropriately, uh, is appropriately done. And I'd like to suggest that, um, that that model, in fact, is applicable. There's one other uh, to uh, thinking about how we make private-public partnerships work better today. 
There's one other aspect I'll just uh, leave you with, which is there was also created a true government private sector command center. I mean, it really was. It's the first, only command center I've ever been in, where it, which really looked like it was in the movies. It was really great. I really, it was fun to be there. Um, you know, big screens and everything else like that. Um, so, and I think that that might be important as well, and I'll come back to that. But here's my thought. One way for the federal government to work with the private sector in terms of partnerships would simply be for the federal government, let's say, to issue threat assessments uh, dealing with cybersecurity threats and simply say either to the private sector, here's our threat assessment, you can do with it whatever you want, or here's our threat assessment, you can do whatever you want, and by the way, if something bad happens and you haven't adequately addressed this threat, then you're not going to be exempt from any subsequent liability. And basically just leave it then to the, uh, to the private sector to coordinate itself however they wish to address um, these risks or not address these risks. And I like this approach. It's a little controversial. I like this approach. It has a lot of problems too. But I like this approach because what it does is it puts the um, responsibility for a threat assessment probably where the best information is, which is within the federal government and particularly the national security apparatus. And it puts the onus for addressing and managing the risk and assessing the risk um, where it's best done, which is in the private sector. So there's an entire set of mechanisms of rating agencies and insurance companies and risk adjusters and the like that are used to dealing with uncertain and highly uh, unquantifiable risks in all sorts of dimensions. And maybe, in, maybe we ought to be utilizing those. You know, it's a messy process, but there's lots of these people out there in the private sector, and somehow the, the industry manages to more or less do an okay job of managing its risks most of the time. Maybe we ought to take that approach here. So rather than having a formal approach where we have sector coordinating councils and sector-specific agencies and require these sector coordinating councils representing a particular sector to come up with a specific plan and present it to the sector-specific agency and whatever else. Maybe we ought to just have the federal government say, this is what we believe at this particular point in time the threat that you have to deal with is. You deal with it. Now, uh, I know Herb Lynn wrote it, has written a very interesting paper talking about the difficulties of, um, de of putting together appropriate threat assessments, and I acknowledge that. Um, and I also acknowledge that there's some really sort of major issues in terms of, of uh, exactly to what extent uh, a private entity ought to be, should there be limitations on the liability uh, that would arise from uh, essentially what is essentially a national security threat. But I'd like to suggest that in the face of the fact that I believe most public-private partnerships are not structured to work, cannot structurally work very well, I'd like to suggest this as an alternative approach. Um, the second thing I'm going to suggest is that in the case of the Internet, that we simply think about building a new parallel network for those applications that um, 
really require both the security, the reliability, and the attribution, that technically the Internet protocols cannot, no matter what we do, provide inherently. You can layer on applications on top that kind of do that, but fundamentally the Internet is not a reliable and secure and attributable means of conveying information from point A to point B. And it has some inherent weaknesses in terms of its addressing system that lead it open, leave it open to disruptions. I believe, and this is an act that requires, I believe, more political courage than it does technical uh, uh, investment or monetary investment. I believe that the United States ought to lead a coalition of other nations in terms of doing what was done 40 years ago for the Internet and launching a new network that will essentially provide for, it's not a small network, I'm talking about a substantial network that eventually I hope would supplant the Internet, but initially would be used for those applications both uh, across governments and across the banking and financial sector and other critical infrastructures that require the security and reliability and attribution that the Internet doesn't provide. Now, this is just a diagram that says basically, you know, where are we right now? There's a lot of work, and actually part of, part of a big chunk of my time is actually spent right now working on a, one of the projects that's looking technologically at what a next generation network would be. What we haven't gotten to yet is the point of actually building that new network out. So I'm just going to suggest that we can actually do that. So how did the Internet start? The Internet started because there was a research project that was funded by DARPA, and there was universities that were part of this research network, and a new protocol was developed that initially was used called TCPIP. It was initially used to communicate amongst, I think it was a handful. I think initially it was three, and then it was 30 or 40 uh, universities. That was the start of the Internet. And that's how new networked infrastructures start, is that you get somebody who has vision, which in this case was DARPA, and you get that DARPA person to then fund out the building of a new infrastructure and as that infrastructure gains new members, it grows. And oh, by the way, that's exactly how, for example, the, the networked infrastructure we call the electric grid started. The electric grid didn't start because Joe decided to get a light bulb and wire his house. It started because Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison was the DARPA of his day. Thomas Edison decided that he was going to well, he, he, he was the first to develop a light bulb because he wanted to have a use for electricity. And once having invented or developed, being the first to develop the light bulb, he invested in building out a small but of scale networked infrastructure in, in, in South Manhattan for, of electric wiring. Of, so there was a generator and he wired this particular section they had light bulbs, that was the generator. And eventually this became, guess what, Con Edison, and eventually uh, another spin-out became General Electric, uh, and the like. But what he did, he did what DARPA did. He said, I am going to take a new networked infrastructure and I'm going to build it out at some minimums, minimum scale. 
And I think that's what we can do with uh, uh, today with a next generation network. And my suggestion is just simply that there be a coalition of Western, of the military or intelligence authorities in a bunch of Western nations that adopt a new network and build it out. And it's exactly the analog of what Edison did, only on a global scale. And that by doing that, we can solve a lot of the issues that currently bedevil us with what I think are the insoluble problems of the current public-private partnership of the Internet. Um, I'm going to leave you with one last thought. Uh, I think the, one of the no-brainers in terms of our work going forward is to uh, get better data. Uh, my tagline here is, we know more about liquor store robberies than we do about cybercrime and cyber attacks. And I think that's a really sad state that, of affairs. Uh, and it shouldn't be that way. And I have a number of suggestions in terms of that. Uh, we look at public health, we look at uh, criminal crime data, physical crime data, and we see methods of collection that seem to work pretty well in presenting statistically accurate pictures of complicated behavior. I don't see why we can't apply it to um, cyber attacks and cyber incidents. You know, we don't have any data. I mean, the fact of the matter is we don't have any data. I mean, we have partial pictures of data, but that's all. And I think that's attempts to make address national and global issues based on no data is a really bad idea. And if there's one thing I would get really, I get emphatic about is this is a no-brainer. We ought to be doing this tomorrow. This is not something that requires some major uh, you know, technological revision. So let me just leave you with a couple of thoughts. I think there's some lessons that we can take from, uh, from Victorian London. You know, we live in cities today that really reflect the sort of courageous investments in new in, uh, physical and, and, and uh, organizational infrastructure that the Victorian London's, Londoners made. And I think we have faced in a lot of ways the same challenge when we look at networks. Um, we do have choices. I do think that when we look at public-private partnerships, there are some structural reasons why simply that the, the partnerships that we have today don't work particularly very well in many cases. And I think the most important challenge is probably the fact that our, for, for structural reasons, I don't think our ability to have a, an adequate national security management of the Internet is ever going to be adequate. And I do think there are some things that we can do. They're not going to solve the problem, but they're going to at least push us substantially forward. And I think that a system of perhaps more indirectly imposing the requirement to address risk uh, on the private sector uh, is one approach. I'm a great fan and I strongly advocate that we think, we begin to think about the political courage to actually build out a new network at scale. And as a no-brainer, I think that we ought to be tomorrow taking steps to obtain better data um, uh, so that we understand the, network, the range of the problems. And with that, uh, let me thank you very much. And there's maybe a few moments for questions as well. But thank you.
they ask you uh, also just to identify yourself for the Is it? Uh, it's on. Uh, yes. Mark, uh, Mark McCarthy with Georgetown University. Hi. Hi. Um, a great talk. Uh, I like the contrast between centralized systems and uh, decentralized systems. That's a key uh, distinction. But I, I was fascinated by your, your reference to liability, and I wonder if you have anything more to, to say about that. Um, it's an enormously complicated and difficult set of issues. But one big dividing line is uh, liability falls on, on whom? I mean, if you're a provider of critical information uh, infrastructure, uh, you're a banking entity or an energy company, uh, the liability for something going wrong could fall on you. Or it could fall on the providers of IT and security systems and so on, that their systems failed as service providers to the, uh, to the provider of critical information infrastructure. Where do you think it should fall? Do you have any reflections on that? Um. When the Catholic Church put down the Cathar heresy in 1200 in France, <clears throat> one of the bishops was, was quoted as saying, kill them all, we'll let God sort out who are the righteous. Um, and I'm tempted, I'm tempted to say that the approach perhaps ought to be to let anybody sue anybody and have it all sorted out. I think that that would be irresponsible on my part to say that. Um, I, I think that this has to, first of all, I think that liability ought to be limited. I, I think there ought to be explicit limitations on, on liability. The point here is not to bankrupt you know, entire sectors of the American economy, nor to create the you know, the, the lawyers and expert testimony providers full employment act of 2011 here. Um, so I think liability ought to be limited and I think it ought to be limited to some relatively modest amount. What I would hope would be the goal of a system of liability would in fact be to use, in a sense, the, dare I, dare I use the Victorian term of public shame but the, the, the sense of public responsibility uh, of, of private sector organizations um, that they don't want to be in a situation where they are perceived or being or perceived as be, having not uh, addressed adequately uh, a, a national security threat. <coughs> I'm in dangerous ground. You know, my, my entire career I seem to be walking on thin ice. And so this is another example. Here I am, a non-lawyer at a law school talking about liability and proposing sweeping reforms uh, to sectors, dealing and, and asking about threat assessments that obviously are going to be very, very difficult uh, to create. But I. My goal is not to sue everybody and bankrupt them. My goal would be to create a gentle but persuasive set of incentives. And if there's some reach back from the initial provider back to the security company, well, I don't have a problem with that. I actually do think that, that software providers ought to be held to some standard of liability for the security and functionality of their products. And I think that one could think about 
having extending liability to software producers as a separate but related uh, issue to the uh, responsibility through liability that uh, critical infrastructure providers would have. I don't know if that answers your question, but maybe it talks a bit about it. Um, hi, Herb Lin. Um, I'm intrigued by the Y2K experience as a way of, use, of gaining leverage on the, uh, on, on the problem. I, mean, I think that Y2K was a remarkably successful enterprise by the, by the U.S. government and all the world's governments. But I was wondering if you could comment on the sustainability of a Y2K approach to a problem that's ongoing. Y2K, by definition, had you know, there was a date certain, um, and everybody knew that something, if it's going to happen, is going to happen when it was going to happen. And the cybersecurity issue is something that goes on forever. So I was wondering if you could comment on that. Now, uh, Herb, that's a really good point. Um, because there was a lot of attention, and Y2K not only was a specific problem, but it had a specific fix to it having to do with the date fields um, in, in software. And, and believe me, having done a lot of programming prior to the year 2000, I was as guilty as everybody of putting in two-digit date fields uh, uh, as well. So security overall uh, in the face of cyber threats of critical infrastructures is a much more amorphous problem. But I don't see why a reasonably accurate threat assessment can, and the need to address that, the risk that results from that threat assessment can't become part of the overall risk assessment or risk management process for private sector owners and operators, just as the risk of hurricanes or earthquakes or whatever else or fires or floods is also, or terrorism, terror, uh, kinetic terrorist attacks, is somehow figured into the risk assessment on an, on an ongoing basis. I'm, I, I'm not suggesting, I think one of the aspects perhaps that you're alluding to with Y2K is there was this aspect of sort of the heroic big push. And I'm not anticipating that. In fact, I think if we have some heroic big push to make ourselves, quote unquote, secure against cyber threats, uh, that we will have failed. I would rather that we think about addressing uh, cyber threats as being, I mean, when it becomes a workaday, realistic part of the risk management process of the private sector, I think we will have succeeded. Um, and so in that sense, I hope that it will be sustainable. Okay. Um, I was wondering, so you're talking about like a parallel internet existing. Mm -hmm. How do you break into that market and compete with the internet? And like how, like I, I view that as being wildly expensive. Like how do you get like the political like backing for that, especially when you're cutting budgets to the bone now? Like is this going to happen? Do you see this happening in the next five years or ten years or? What kind of timeline do you see on this realistically being implemented? Let me, let me talk about how I would anticipate. Okay, I'm going I'm to leave. In, in, in today's environment, um, I'm doubtful whether 
um, we're still going to have, uh, who knows what's going to be maintained by the federal government. Um, so let's leave the budget issues aside. But actually, it's not a question of breaking into a market. What I would anticipate is the following. Look, when, when, you, if, when you think about how the Internet was first launched, it was launched because there was a set of universities, research universities and institutions, and they have, and it was, I don't know, 30 of them. And a new protocol for communication was developed, and it was initially shared amongst those 30 research institutions. That's how the market started. And then other institutions gradually joined it, and then eventually it became public, uh, publicly accessible, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's a little different today because we already have an Internet, but what I would propose is simply that, and the details, look, we can criticize the details, and I have some problems in terms of saying the military or the national security communities of, but let's stick with this. Let me say, let me posit that if the, if the, if the let's say the intelligence organizations or the national security communities of the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand, uh, were to get together and say, we're going to launch a new network to handle all of our communications needs. And our plan is to, now we're going to have to worry about how, what sort of interconnectivity there is between that network and all the stuff that's happening on the Internet. But it's not like we're only going to use this network for our secret internal stuff. We're going to use it for everything. Because the plan is eventually for this network to become useful for everybody. And then to gradually open it up for use by, um, let's say, the bank, uh, the international banking community, people in other critical infrastructures, and open it up essentially as it grows uh, for use by um, essentially everybody. The point being that it would be a network that would be designed to have some qualities that we don't have in the Internet. Um, one of them being the ability to accurately and with some degree of reliability attribute the source of a message. Uh, another would be greater reliability in terms of the underlying network architecture, which you don't have with like the domain name system right now with the Internet. Um, things like that, that that I think are technically achievable. So, and I mean, there's, there's big issues that are involved here in terms of like how do you connect between this network and the, and the existing Internet. In terms of cost, though, you know, we're not talking about digging up cables. We're talking about the same old fiber optic cables. And the, the average lifetime of a router uh, is around five years. So if you think about a, just a replacement cycle and think about new routers and servers and the like coming on over a five-year period, you know, you could argue that, in fact, there's not a significant capital cost because you're not actually scrapping a lot of existing equipment. Uh, if you phase it in. When should it start? I think, you know, in the next couple years. You know, my sense, and uh, this, is, this is painting with a broad brush, but my sense involved in a lot of technical discussions is, you know, technically we're awfully close to being able to create the sort of network that we would like to have or that arguably one would like to have. It's not the technical issues. It's the political will to actually build it out. I mean, I, I'll leave you with one final thing. We're talking about launching a new networked infrastructure. There are relatively few examples in the history of the world of new network infrastructures being launched. So we have the electric power grid, we have the telephone system, we have telegraph, arguably railroads, arguably 
to a certain extent, uh, you know, superhighways or autobahns. Um, there aren't that many examples. So, I mean, there's a certain amount of risk involved in all of this. But I think it's worth us putting, doing that. Jeffrey, since we're almost um, at, at the end of the opening period, I thought I would ask you the obvious blogosphere question, because just in case you haven't gotten yourself into maximum trouble yet, and that is, so if you have a picture of one network and, and that network is responsible for the electrical grid and you know toxic chemicals and all the dangerous stuff, I think most people would say, oh, that sounds great. But this highly attributable network becoming the network through which people communicate for sort of ordinary, everyday communication purposes, like political organizing and so forth, does seem to create the prospect of this network becoming an instrument of kind of comprehensive surveillance. Um, and in the wake, uh, and you know, so I'm sure China would be an enthusiastic backer. This is the blogosphere speaking. Um, right. What do you think? Well. In one of my other lives, I actually do research on attribution for the next generation network. I am a great believer that attribution does not just mean I know exactly where my the message the me, that the message came from you. I think attribution. I think in the next generation, what we ought to have is we ought to have a, a, ought to have a framework of choice for attribution. So attribution could mean Peter, you send me a message, and I know that it came from you. But it could also mean that you and I agree or we have a system so that if you send me a message, I don't know that it came from you. Um, I think there ought to be a framework actually where we have different types of choice for attribution. And I, this sounds all very theoretical, but um, I'm going to suggest that we have that right now to a certain extent on the telephone system. So we have, guess what, we have caller ID. So I know that Peter's calling me. We also have call blocking, so that I don't get a phone call from um, Peter, or Peter can say, I don't want my telephone number to be announced to somebody else. I mean, there are different choices that we already have about attribution that are baked into the telephone system. We sort of take that for granted. My suggestion is, well, why don't we take what we take for granted on the telephone system and try and have a next generation internet that does some of the same sorts of things. And I think one of the things is it's going to have to address or provide the opportunity for the sort of an anonymity and political free speech. So attribution is not just, you know, what the Chinese want. I know what the Chinese want. Uh, I think we ought to be able to provide also the choice or the opportunities for political discourse that the Chinese don't want in our next generation network. Every session today is going to leave people wanting more. And so what I'm going to ask people to do now um, is not to try to uh, stall Jeffrey's exit by asking questions, but allow him to get to the table where there are his books to uh, purchase or sign and tax him with additional questions then. And we will uh, reconvene in 15 minutes for the first panel. But I hope you'll join me in uh, thanking Jeffrey for giving us an, a great start.